It's early evening in the Sinai Desert, circa 1500 BCE. In the large open foyer of a desert inn, dust-covered journeymen from across the Near East are regaling one another with highly embellished tales of their gallant adventures and nearly acquired fortunes as they gulp down barely aged wine and freshly fermented beer. Next to them, families are unloading packs from the shoulders of their camels, preparing for a simple dinner and to enjoy some much needed rest. An unassuming man with his wife and two small children in tow meander through the crowd, looking for a quiet, out of the way spot to settle themselves and their belongings. It has been a long journey from Midian, and although their destination, Egypt, is only a day's journey away, the family needs this pit stop to regain their energy. They aren't entirely certain what and who they will encounter when they finally arrive in Egypt, and this may be their last predictable, peaceful night together as a family for some time. Or so they hoped. Suddenly, an unrelenting pain grips the man, forcing him to his knees. He's never felt anything like this. It feels supernaturally intense. He lets out a piercing cry, shocking the other guests, who soon arrange themselves in a circle of observation around the man, wanting to help but not knowing how. The man's wife has knelt over him, trying to make sense of the terror that has overtaken her husband. She is strangely calm and deliberate, though, muttering to herself and clearly connecting some hidden dots in her head. Out of nowhere, she leaps up, grabbing the closest knife she can find from the communal dining table. In her other arm, her young son sleeps blissfully. Then, in one sweeping and decisive maneuver, she circumcises her son, right there in the midst of the entire crowd of onlookers. Her husband slumps to the ground in fatigue and relief. His ordeal is over, the pain subsided. Little does he know that this frightful episode will be only the beginning of his deep and abiding relationship with the Divine. Hello, and welcome back to Pshat or Not, the podcast about Tanakh that we wish existed when we were writing our Bar Mitzvah speeches all those years ago. I'm J.J. Weinstein, your host for today's show. Danny has the week off, but he will be back for future episodes, don't worry. And I guarantee you that when he is back, we will continue to escalate the dramaticness of our intro music. I thought that one was pretty epic. I don't know about you. Today, we are going to offer a new interpretation for, in my humble opinion, one of the most enigmatic episodes in the Torah, perhaps in all of Tanakh. You may have recognized it from the dramatic intro, but as a quick review, it all goes down in Shmot Perak Dalid, Psukim Kaf Dalid to Kaf Vav. Moshe has just finished encountering God at the burning bush and is headed back to Egypt with his family, per God's directive. He's headed back, obviously, to facilitate the liberation of the Jewish people. Pretty important job. But on the way to Egypt from Midian, something majorly unexpected happens. The pshat reading, if there is a pshat reading at all, is that God tries to kill Moshe when Moshe and his family are on the way to Egypt. Zipporah, acting quickly and decisively, performs a brit milah on her son. This causes God to abort the pursuit on Moshe's life. Then Zipporah makes a declarative statement about a bridegroom of blood. That's what she says. Bridegroom of blood twice, actually, she says it. Let's read the art school translation very quickly, just to orient ourselves. Okay. Basukaf Dalid. 
It was on the way in the lodging that Hashem encountered him and sought to kill him. So Tzipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and touched it to his feet. And she said, You caused my bridegroom's bloodshed. So he released him. Then she said, A bridegroom's bloodshed was because of circumcision. So a lot of pronouns going on there, obviously. Kind of hard to tell who him is in each case. Uh, but it's pretty clear that Zipporah acts decisively. So there are a lot of questions here to consider. What is really going on in this episode? So the first thing I think we should do is rewind the tape to Moshe's early life. He was raised in the royal Egyptian court. We know that. Not with his Hebrew brethren, but with Egyptians, presumably. Moshe then commits the famous act of murdering an Egyptian man to defend one of the Hebrew slaves. He is forced to leave Egypt really to flee Egypt, as Paro seeks to bring him to justice, and Moshe ends up in Midian. Interestingly, when Moshe drives away the rival shepherds from Yitro's daughters at the well, the daughters tell their father Yitro, an Egyptian man rescued us. That's what they say, an Egyptian man, not a Hebrew man. Moshe was identifiable as an Egyptian. There is no indication in the text at all that he portrayed himself to anyone in Midian as anything but Egyptian. Moshe then marries Zipporah. He names their first son Gershom, and quote, for he said, I was a stranger in a foreign land. He doesn't say, I was a Hebrew in a foreign land, merely a stranger. Hmm, interesting. Perhaps he meant an Egyptian in a foreign land. Then you fast forward to Moshe's departure from Midian and his return to Egypt, what we were talking about uh, at the beginning. Moshe says to Yitro, quote, Let me go now and return to my brothers who are in Egypt, and let me see whether they are still alive. End quote. If Moshe meant his Hebrew brothers, he certainly did not make that clear. From Yitro's perspective, Moshe, the Egyptian, was returning to Egypt to reunite with his Egyptian brothers. Seems plausible. And from Yitro's perspective, Moshe was returning to Egypt for a family reunion, a homecoming, because Moshe offered no hint at all of the epic mission for which he was just chosen at the burning bush. From Yitro's point of view, he's just going home to see his family. Could Moshe really have concealed his true identity all of those years in Midian? The Torah doesn't really lead us to believe one way or another. It's ambiguous, which is what makes it fun. But so what if he did? What does that have to do with the very weird episode of Moshe being attacked by God and then Sipporah miraculously knowing just what to do in order to save her husband. Before we answer that question, here is a message from our fictitious sponsor, the Sinai Resort and Spa. Indulge yourself at the Sinai Resort and Spa, a unique oasis in the heart of the Sinai Desert. Come visit us and explore all that the barren wilderness has to offer. Enjoy desert luxuries, such as removing your grubby sandals and washing your feet, a single ripe date from our only tree, or a leisurely roll down our famous sand dunes, guaranteed to exfoliate your sun-hardened skin. Not only are we the best hotel in the sparsely populated Sinai Desert, we are the only outpost of civilization for as far as the vulture can squawk. Whether you're on the run from Paro himself, escaping the latest regional famine, 
or simply following divine orders on your way back home. Stop in at the Sinai Resort and Spa to get refreshed and rejuvenated. You never know when the next 10 plagues will hit, so pamper yourself before it's too late. Okay, we're back and ready to discuss how the possibility of Moshe concealing his Hebrew identity from his wife and father-in-law and family in general helps to explain a very mysterious few psukim in Parsha Shmot. If we assume that Moshe did conceal his Hebrew identity, then we can imagine the following scenario. Moshe packs up his family from Midian, setting out on the road. Destination is Egypt. His wife, Zipporah, by his side, asking for a bit more detail than Moshe had offered his father-in-law. Why were they returning to Egypt? What would the living situation be like? Would there be family to greet them? Basically, why are we uprooting our lives? Convince me that life will be better, or at least as good as Midian, when we get to Egypt. So Moshe finally comes clean with Zipporah on the way to Egypt, telling her for the first time of his true identity. To be honest, he kind of had to. Moshe knew that he was imminently going to encounter Aaron. God had told him as much at the conclusion of the burning bush encounter. This is from Shmot, Perik, Dalid, Pasukya Dalid. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he will surely speak, and behold, he is coming forth toward you. And when he sees you, he will rejoice in his heart. Had Moshe not revealed his true identity to Zipporah, how would he explain an effusive Hebrew man approaching them, calling Moshe his brother? Zipporah would have been like, um, what? What's going on here? Now fully aware that she's married to a Hebrew masquerading as an Egyptian, Zipporah and her family arrive at the hotel. Zipporah has likely never met a Hebrew before. How could she? They're all enslaved in Egypt. But there is one thing that people of the ancient Near East likely knew about the Hebrews, something unique and fundamental to the Hebrew identity, circumcision. It was the mark of the covenant, after all, that existed between the Hebrews and their singular, singular all-powerful God. How would people know that? Well, hundreds of years earlier, Shimon and Levi had killed the entire male population of Shem with a ruse, a trick that relied on the importance of Brit Mila to the to the Hebrew family. Interestingly, Yaakov's objection to what Shimon and Levi did is not a moralistic argument, like you did the wrong thing because it was morally wrong. He doesn't call them out for murdering the entire city because it was the wrong thing to do, only that the king and the prince who were directly complicit in the crime against their sister uh, would were well known, and somehow the knowledge of this incident would gain notoriety throughout the ancient world. This is what Yaakov says, quote, You have troubled me to discredit me among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and among the Prezites. Shimon and Levi have no rebuttal related to Yaakov's concern. They kind of agree with him that this would make them infamous uh, around the ancient world. And it would be known that the Brit Mila would be at the core of what happens here. Their rebuttal is, to paraphrase, well, the consequences were worth it. We can't let our sister and our family be dishonored like this. This was really the moment when the Hebrew circumcision practice first became public knowledge at a grand scale. So, when that all-powerful God of the Hebrews shows up the very night that Zipporah learns of her husband's true identity, and that God is seeking her husband's life, Zipporah connects the dots. 
her husband had not performed the one ritual at the very essence of being a Hebrew. Of course, the Hebrew God is peeved at her husband. I mean, he has to be. She performs the Brit Milah, and everyone is safe once again. So what about Sipora's odd statement about a bridegroom of blood, and why does she repeat it twice? The first time she uses this phrase, it's clearly associated with the Brit Milah she has just performed. In fact, she touches her son's foreskin to his own feet while she says it, and addresses her son with the statement, for you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Not entirely straightforward, but you can kind of see the connection there. But the repetition of the statement really stands out as odd. And it makes one wonder if the second usage of that terminology is describing a broader concern at Sipora's beyond that, that moment in time of her husband being attacked. And that concern may be that her husband's true identity and the mission that he's about to embark upon in Egypt are just too risky and uncertain for her and her family. Perhaps this is the moment when Sipora turns the donkey or camel around and takes her children back to the safety of Midian. Having just been made aware of a shocking revelation and then seeing the immediate repercussions almost destroy her family, Zipporah says, a bridegroom of blood concerning the circumcision. Basically, Moshe had become a magnet for bloodshed because of his identity as a Hebrew. Zipporah wasn't quite ready to jump both feet into such a reality. And who can blame her? She got totally blindsided, according to this interpretation that we're proposing here. This would certainly help explain why Yitro reunites Zipporah and her children with Moshe after Yitziat Mitzrayim in the Midbar. It's doubtful that Sipora came to Egypt, then left during the Makot. What kind of message would that have sent to Bnei Israel? Their leader sending his family away to safety, as if his family's well-being was more important than the liberation and safety of the rest of the nation. It would also help explain the lack of any sort of greeting that night, that might, or maybe not that night, but when Aaron approached uh, Moshe, a greeting that might naturally have occurred between the two of them. Instead, Aaron greets Moshe with no mention of Moshe's family at all. You would think Aaron would say, oh, look at your beautiful kids. Look at your, your beautiful wife. It's you know wonderful to meet them all. But this is, uh, this is what the Pasuk says. The Lord said to Aaron, go towards Moses to the desert. So he went and met him on the mountain of God, and he kissed him. Nothing about Moshe's family just the two men meeting. You contrast this with another reuniting of two long separated brothers, Yaakov and Esav, who are frequent guests of this podcast, or will be. Uh, and here's what the Pasuk and Breshit uh, says in uh, Parak Lama Gimel. And Esav ran toward him and embraced him, and he fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children, and he said, Who are these to you? And he, Yaakov, said, the children with whom God has favored your servant. In each case, there is an emotional reuniting of brother with brother. It would have been expected that Aaron asked Moshe to introduce Moshe's wife and children, as Aesop did. But the lack of that type of exchange suggests to me, at least, that Moshe was no longer traveling with his family by the time Aaron arrived to meet him. So there you have it. That's the best explanation of this mysterious fupsukim that I've come up with. And I realize it is a lot to digest. If after listening to this show, you have that light bulb moment 
and can put the puzzle pieces together in a different way, and you want to share your thoughts, please reach out on Twitter or Facebook at Shot or Not, or email us shotornot at gmail.com. Or if you just feel passionately one way or another about my way of looking at this tiny slice of Tanakh, please reach out as well, social media or email. Let's keep the conversation going. Danny and I will be back with another new episode very soon, most likely rewinding the chronological clock back to Sefer Brashid. For now, adios. Adios.